You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law podcast. I am Kyla Lee from Acumen Law Corporation, and with me, my sometimes guest host, and last week, guest host without me, Paul Dorshenko. I was the host last week with yeah. a special guest star, Chris Thompson from SenseBC. I felt and, really left out. Yeah, people thought it was a great discussion. I was worried because Chris and I would both go into monologues on our various issues of concern, and I thought, oh, this is not a... It was interview in the standard interview. It was mansplaining, like, but not like the fu politics Ed the sock mansplaining. It was well, just no, mansplaining. Actually, it was similar to to uh, Ed the sock because Ed Ed does take over and basically give a lengthy monologues, and you sit there quietly wondering when you're going to speak again, if at all. But in this case, it was uh, both Chris and I going into those lengthy monologues, and in the end, I forgot to get out the one <laughs> major point, which was that the government decided not to put ski speed cameras on the Malahat. And they largely did that, one would think, because of Chris's film. Because they knew that they would get so much criticism, you know, people would be actually questioning the statistics this time. So I yeah. mean that's that's my that's my read into the government not doing it. But they came out and said, look, we don't have the the evidence. The evidence to do it. And that was nice because usually they do things with evidence that is designed to come to a particular conclusion. Although I don't know if you saw, but like the same day they, they announced that the the RCMP, who patrol that area, released statistics being like, we issued 327 speeding tickets here last month. But like, look, they may have issued 327 speeding tickets there last month, or however many it was. It was a really high number, um, or it sounded like a high number, but... You have to take into account the amount of traffic going down that corridor and the amount of enforcement at that corridor relative to any other roadway you in the choose, province. You can choose to enforce and, and, and sure. make the numbers spiked. Yeah. The point was that the accident data did not support um, that speed was the issue no. on that stretch of it's highway. It's a bad highway. It was, it was people not paying attention. Yeah, it's a crappy highway, and yeah. if you don't pay really good attention, you're going to miss that lanes appear and then end. You're going to miss that cars are coming up behind you and, and coming on the other end, and there's a beautiful view, which you can't look at, because <laughs> the road is windy. Yep. So, uh, since BC gets the credit for that, and, and Chris didn't even notice at the end of the discussion that we forgot that, and it wasn't until the next day when I was listening to the podcast that I was like, oh, well, we never got to the end. You guys were just so into your man talk. We were. We yeah. were into man talk. Oh, that's good. I didn't have a ridiculous driver of the week. Uh, I we felt, didn't have three topics. We sort of had three topics. But. I mean, I felt I felt a little left out because I had said, you know, I have things to talk about. Call me when you're done with Chris and, you know, you can do me by we phone. Used, we went over time. You went over time. You you were you phoned me. You're like, okay, so I've got 51 minutes of content. How much more do I need? And I was like, oh, God, you've done too much. Anyway, let's move on to this week. It's now the final podcast of 2019. Is it? It yeah. is. It's the final podcast of 2019. Well, looking back on this decade of podcasts, wait a minute. It's only, <laughs> it's only been about 18 months. 
a little more. It started in March. Yeah. So like 20 months. Enjoyed the podcasting and we will continue. And the reason we'll continue, I guess, is because they are always driving law topics. They are always driving law topics. And speaking of which, um, you did win our bet. I originally thought that I had won. You even paid me $100. It was beautiful. Um, You tweeted in glory? I tweeted in glory. I made a boomerang, waving myself with the 250s you gave me. And then, alas, somebody alerted me to the fact that there were still exams on December 20th. Which, A, sucks for those law students who had to sit down and write their admin law exams, like, the day after Vavilov was released, or even the 19th, the day it was released. Like, what do you do? How do you write your admin law exam? They were probably sent an email saying you don't have to worry about Vavilov. Yeah, I mean, probably. I I assume that any reasonable professor would do that, but still. Also, like, it just feels like you've poured your whole blood, sweat, and tears into learning... Three and a half months of education. three, Three and a half months of how to identify the correct standard of review and what is really a true question of jurisdiction and does it ever arise only to learn that... Uh, there's no such thing as a true question of jurisdiction. And even if there is, it's reasonableness. A poo on The Simpsons was talking about doing his PhD, was talking about his PhD um, thesis and how it was, you know, he had figured out some game and it was all on uh, IBM punch cards and that's how he got his PhD. And then he just threw it out because it was all garbage. And basically, you know, your entire course is, might as well throw out all that material. All yeah. you need now is Vavilov. Like, and could you, could you get a question wrong on an admin law exam where they were like, here's a true question of jurisdiction, identify the correct standard of review, and you write down correctness. Well, that's correct pre-Vavilov. So if the professor said ignore Vavilov, you're right. But if you write down reasonableness and then cite Vavilov for that proposition, are you not also right? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people will get better grades than they yeah. might otherwise get. <laughs> Maybe this on the was a gift. <laughs> um, and uh, the interesting thing about it was, uh, not only was I right on the proposition that it would uh, come before the end of the exams, I was also right on the proposition of it'll come at Christmas time. You watch. You said they don't do anything at Christmas. I said you watch. I know. It'll come at Christmas time because it'll give people a few weeks, a week or so to prepare for their hearings beginning yeah. January 2nd. While all the courts are closed. Meanwhile, I'm like scrambling to send emails because I had judicial reviews lined up like for the following week, scrambling to send emails to um to the lawyers saying we shouldn't run this. We don't know what's going to happen and if we run it, we're going to end up, you know, having to go back and argue about standard of review all over again. Please God no. Yes. So uh, I should have bet more on that second point because it turns out it was a rare occasion Paul was right about everything. It was a rare, rare occasion, yes. I didn't predict what the decision would be. But I don't want to just talk about why you won the bet. I know you would rather spend, you know, 45 minutes on the podcast gloating. I haven't read the whole decision. I've only read some of those summaries out there. Well, I'm going to talk to you about why it matters to driving law. Okay, well, tell me about it. First of all, Vavilov was not a case about driving law. 
not at all. Vavilov was a case about immigration law, essentially citizenship. Mr. Vavilov was the child of Russian spies who were living in Canada under false identities, and they wanted to, or he wanted to retain his Canadian citizenship. And the government's like, no, 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 no. You're a child of a of an employee of a foreign government living and working in Canada. You're not entitled to citizenship, even if you were born here. Because there's like the exemption, right? Like yes. you're a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. Like my parents were spies. I had no part in that. I grew up believing I was a Canadian and that everything was normal. I didn't know that they were these sleeper cell agents. So that was Mr. Vavilov. The companion case to Vavilov was the case of Bell Express View, which was about Bell acquiring the broadcast rights to the Super Bowl in Canada and then saying, hey, guess what? We're going to sell the advertising time here in Canada because nobody in Canada wants to watch American Super Bowl ads. And meanwhile, people were like, are you kidding? That's like literally the only reason anybody watches the Super Bowl. Um, At that point, you know, who cares who wins, right? Um, And so they filed a complaint with the CRTC because they weren't allowed to watch these American Super Bowl ads. And who filed the complaint? The people. The people, the people versus Bell Express View. Well, I don't know. There was somebody. Okay. Somebody and, who filed yeah. a complaint. I've, I've been trying to follow this story based on tweets. Yeah, so. I, don't, I don't. It doesn't really matter who filed the complaint. I mean, in administrative was, law, standing is determined by whether you're affected by a decision. So that's fine. It, it doesn't really matter for the purpose of the decision in the end. So yeah. So, one case about still not driving. Still not driving, but I'm getting there. One case is about something so fundamental to your identity and to your life, where you live and what your citizenship is. Hugely important. Hugely important. Another case. You against the state, just the lone individual against the oppressive action of a a, um, a bureaucratic nightmare of a state. Yes. And the other case about what advertising you get to watch while the Super Bowl's airing, recognizing that you can watch all the commercials online on YouTube afterwards anyway. Mm -hmm. And they're replayed in, like, news clips and shit. Um, Why this matters to driving law. One of the things the Supreme Court of Canada said in Vavilov, and they kind of revived this discussion that had been buried under Dunsmuir, which was that reasonableness takes its color from context. And so to determine whether a decision is reasonable, like an adjudicator's decision with the superintendent of motor vehicles um, about the validity of your IRP or your ADP, if reasonableness takes its color from context, then the adjudicators are obligated to take into consideration the personal circumstances of the person affected by the decision they're going to make and how the decision is going to impact them. Do you see how this relates to driving law now? Okay, but um, on the pure issue of their whether or not their fail is a actually a reliable fail or not, how is an adjudicator going to then say, well, I can't say that their fail was reliable because it's going to have a huge impact on them for a driving prohibition? No, I mean you don't get you don't get to it that way, but you might factor in somebody's personal circumstances in the weight that you give their evidence. The likelihood that they would have made the decision to drink and drive if they need their car to take their autistic child to adaptive behavioral therapy. 
Oh, okay. All right. So you could fit it in. That's you a can, good way. Yeah. You can shoehorn it in that way. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about context is the court in Vavilov also said you have to take into context, into account the context in which the particular factual circumstances are playing out. And this has a much bigger impact on these cases. Because how many times, Paul, have you seen a case where somebody says, my second test was on the same device? And you get them to explain why, and they're like, well, it looked the same, and this and that. I didn't see him the entire time, but I'm I'm certain it was the same device. He was I, sitting I, on the hood, he never yeah. went back to his passenger side. Or, or whatever. But even if they lost continuity of the officer for a brief period. Mm-hmm. The context in which this situation, roadside, for these drivers is playing out, is one in which they're detained... Their freedom of movement is restricted. Often they're handcuffed or placed in the back of a police vehicle between the two tests. Uh, The context is one in which they are at a huge disadvantage in a power imbalance against the state where the officer has the power against them to control their movement, to control their location, to control their actions. And the officer also has control over the device or devices that are being used. And so because the officer has all of that power and all of that information and the driver does not, then if a driver says, I'm sure it was the same device because of and gives some reason why they know, even if they aren't able to say, I saw the device the entire time and I saw the officer the entire time and I'm, you know, at no point did he ever switch it out. They should still accept the driver's evidence because the context requires them to understand that the driver's not always going to be able to do that. And so all of those decisions that have been upheld by the courts where they've said, you know, the officer walked away from you so you couldn't see the entire time what he was doing and he may have got a different device. We can argue those now. They're all, and that had previously been determined to be reasonable, but it didn't take into account, because it didn't have to, this context. And so this life has been breathed back into the notion that reasonableness takes its color from context. The court just says, there's not different standards of reasonableness, just what reasonableness is going to look like is going to vary based on the context in which the reasonableness analysis is taking place. The interesting thing about this, from my perspective, as I've been thinking about this over Christmas, was... All of the decisions that were unsuccessful in IRP judicial reviews, the vast majority of them would potentially have a different outcome now as yes. a result of this yes. uh, change in um, in the law. And so it really undermines the precedent value of them. And I don't think it does any undermining. I don't think it damages the precedent value of the successful decisions at all. Nope. So it actually opens it up in a fantastic way uh, for judicial reviews and judicial reviews that we've got filed that are outstanding that we've been waiting for a hearing on and that we've been putting off waiting for this decision. Well, and also like all of the ones that have been successful usually have been successful because the decision itself is so lacking in logic or fundamentally flawed. And if Avalov, the court actually adopts this thing that the court of appeal here did in Scott and Kenyon, um, and white, where they talked about how even if the ultimate findings might be capable of being supported by the evidentiary record, if the way in which the adjudicator arrives at that conclusion is manifestly flawed, then the decision itself is unreasonable. Now, the superintendent had tried to appeal that to the Supreme Court of Canada. They were denied leave. But it wasn't clear. Was the Supreme Court of Canada denying leave because they agreed that the Court of Appeal was right or just because it wasn't a question of national importance? Well, well now... You never know. 
you never know because they don't give reasons but now Vavilov says yes you have you know you have this um this uh, this requirement that decisions have logic to them and that they can't be fundamentally flawed and they actually incorporate that manifestly flawed rationale idea from Kenyon Scott and White and so everything that's been overturned all the decisions that have been overturned because of that which is like 99% of them they're all good solid law still Vavlov even recognizes that some decisions are going to not be useful in precedential value anymore so yes you're you're quite spot on about that yeah so that's good and uh, I'm glad for the ones that we waited but it means we're going to have to get them on now. It's going to be a lot of work, but... It's going to be a lot of work. Um, hopefully we can, if we get a couple, we can, you know, develop it through and, and but, get rid of a bunch that But the way. Attorney General is going to push back now and take the position that... that the Don't give them ideas. Uh, okay, I won't. <laughs> uh, I know what you're going to say, but no. don't give them ideas and don't finish that sentence. Because um, they probably listen to this podcast. Some of them do. Yeah. Um... <laughs> The other interesting thing that comes out of this decision... I, I don't think it would be a successful pushback. I just think it actually will be quite effective when it comes to um, dealing with some of the... What I can have argued, and I argue in hearings, are irrational conclusions that police officers come to. Yep. Where the adjudicator just adopts the irrational conclusion of the police officer. Well, remember, the police officer, as the courts have repeatedly said, is a tribunal in and of himself. Or herself, or itself. A tribunal in and of herself with a specific procedure for review. Yeah, I mean... i got to think about that. Okay, so what was your next point? The next point was, so this is reasonableness, and how Vavilov and its conclusions on reasonableness impact driving law. But there's also correctness. Yes. I know, you're like, I can't believe you're making me talk about standard of review during no, the Christmas I mean, season, look, I've, Kyla. I'm actually sitting here going, okay, I need to learn Vavilov, and I know I've read like three summaries, but I haven't Yeah, so correct read the decision yet because it's 260 pages. It's insane. Uh, correctness now has a broader application. Maybe it's not that long. I'll print it out. I was going to print it out. Go ahead. So now the law says that the standard of review will be correctness if... There is a question of national importance or fundamental importance to the legal system as a whole. I'm going to come back to that. Two, if the uh, exercise that the adjudicator has to engage in involves competing jurisdictions between decision-making bodies. Okay, yeah. See where I'm going? And three, and this is the one we'll start with, if... The statute provides for a right of appeal, then the the correctness standard is deemed to apply. Well, there's some things in BC that give you a right to appeal. Yes. What are they, Paul? Um, notice of prohibitions. Exactly. Notice of intent to prohibit. You have a Anybody. statutory right to appeal. Anybody served with served 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 anybody served with a uh, driving prohibition for points, or for stunting or street racing or any of those have a statutory right of, of appeal straight to BC Supreme yeah. Court. Section ninety four of the Motor Vehicle Act says it is an appeal uh, of the driving prohibition. Now that completely overturns all of the existing case law in that arena. 
Because up heretofore in that area... It's been treated the same way as a... It's been treated the same way as a judicial review. And we've gone into court. I've, I've gone into court and, like, been standing there. And the judge says, well, what's the standard of review? And I say, well, it's reasonableness. So even though this is an appeal, we're actually conducting a judicial review. It's just called an appeal, well, but it's a judicial we, review. And, and the judge like looks way, at me. But, yeah. yeah. And the judge looks at you quizzically. And then you're like, it's what the case law says. Don't ask me. I didn't uh, write the law. You can think of some better way to, for me to come at it. I'd be happy to do it. But this is what I've got. Yeah. So correctness. And this is at, the government's position too. Yeah. So correctness is a much higher standard of review no deference owed to the decision maker and if there's palpable and overriding error in any of the facts that are found on a decision reviewed for correctness it's basically a new hearing but it's a hearing in front of a bc supreme court judge yeah and i think that that really opens the door for people who are unsuccessful in their disputes of their notice of intents um to put it off to if you don't get file an appeal and, yeah, buy some time, and the judge is going to have to consider it then, probably. So I think this is going to be a big area for Brandon to make the law, carve it out. That's a great area. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, he's already, you know, into that stuff, so... He's already into doing them, and now he's going to get to be the, be the one who spearheads this and leads the charge forward, I hope. You don't want to do it. I don't have time. I know, I know. Uh, I would love to do it, but I don't have time. I know. Now... Going back to correctness and what I said we'd come back to, which is when you have a competing statutory decision maker. You have a competing statutory decision maker when you are dealing with issues that engage the interpretation of the criminal code and the charter. Because, of course, criminal code jurisdiction is vested in provincial and Supreme Court ah, judges. Ah, I didn't know where you are going. I didn't know where you are going. Now I know where you are going. Now and I know where you are going. Oh, my gosh. of course, requires a, you know, to some extent, a court of competent jurisdiction. So. You've got multiple competing ones because you've got the. Criminal the, code demand. Criminal code demand. Criminal the, code authority. The use of the term care and control, which is a criminal code term. Criminal code authority to compel the person to. To. Submit themselves to a warrantless search? The case law has already established that the use of the term reasonable excuse in the legislation denotes the criminal code concept of reasonable excuse. Oh, wow. This is mind-blowing. I never thought of this. So all of, basically all of the refusal cases are arguably reviewable on a correctness standard. Because of the... uh, Competing jurisdiction. Well, even the competing jurisdiction in a fail case, because it's all, I mean, the, the sample is only obtained as a result of the requirement to provide the uh, your breath sample in a warrantless search that is only occasioned by law from the criminal code. So you have the yep. competing jurisdictions in legislation setting it up. And the government stood there and said, we could write our own fail or our own demand. Well, guess what? Now you're going to have to. Well, if you want. If and you, if want you want reasonableness. Not to, yeah. The, um. Uh, but I don't think you could, and I thought that one out years ago, and yeah. you'd have a big problem, government, if you decide to do that one. Yeah, I mean, I dare you. <laughs> yeah, well, I dare you too, but it will, uh, it will make the IRP scheme, it'll take away the second step, which is allowed that discretion of a police officer. Yep, and then you'll so, get back into whether you're, whether yeah. you're <laughs> stealing the authority of the criminal code away from it. Woohoo! Yeah. New arguments back. New arguments, <laughs> and... Also, the very first one that engages the correctness standard, um, questions of central importance to the legal system as a whole, is not the interpretation of the charter 
and a determination of whether somebody's charter rights were violated, a question of central importance to the legal system as a whole. It is the guiding document that that sets out how police officers oh are supposed goodness. to engage with citizens. Oh if that's goodness. not the most important piece of legislation in our country, what then is? Well, the other thing that was I thought was quite interesting in there... And in fact, constitutional questions, which, which a charter question is, are questions that engage a correctness standard. So everything where you say this was taken in violation of my right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure, my violation of my right to counsel, all of that's reviewable on correctness, not reasonableness, and no deference is owed to the adjudicator. I want you to explain a little bit to me because I've been using it already in hearings, but I'm not knowing, I'm not sure if I'm using it correctly, but there's lots of commentary in there about um, the requirements of the tribunal bearing in mind um, that they're adjudicating something that has a significant impact mm-hmm. on a person, like can ruin their life, they can uh, lose their job, they could you know, lose their citizenship or something like that, as opposed to not being able to watch commercials. Right, so... Because I've, I've already been citing it, and I don't know if I'm even citing it correctly. So this is, this is the context thing that Vavilov gets into. It says, you know, the bigger, the more substantial the impact that the decision is going to have on a person the more that's required in providing reasons in transparency in um a a clear and cogent sort of logical pathway to the conclusion the more they owe to you and so the the more of an impact that the decision is going to have on you the better a job the adjudicator has to do you can argue that the the police is the first adjudicator owe that duty. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so you can argue that the police, when they provide just a crappy report with, with little information, have failed in that duty. For example, when you get a, a report where the police officer, you know the person blew eight times before they got a fail, and the police officer doesn't, doesn't say anything give any information or, about or it. Or blew eight times. Or just records fail. Yeah. Um, then you know the police officer has failed in their duty to provide that information that is necessary in a warrantless search case. And then you link it back to context too, because the context is the person can't get any of the information the officer had access to as far as what the device said or did. Because the officers, we can only rely on the officer to record it because the device doesn't record it itself. Yep. And if the officer doesn't disclose it, our client has their hands tied behind their back because the officer's the one collecting the device and the officer's the one choosing what they're going to submit. Fuck even the shape of the Alka-Sensor FST, the the only device, if you believe everything other than court testimony recently, um, the only device used in British Columbia, um, is shaped in such a way that the screen points at the officer and away from the driver. Sure. You can't even see the screen as you're blowing into it. At least with the DWF, if you, you know, turned your head a little bit and, and if you knew you, know, you could you could look around the corner and you might be able to see the lights on the front of it. Yeah. But also the DWF, the the display was on the side, so you'd take it away, the officer would usually hold yeah, it out on the it. side because Whereas, it was in the palm of their hand and you'd be able to see and for the record, Mr. Doroshenko, you're gesturing uh, with your right arm out at a 45-degree angle to your side, holding your hand in a cupped motion as though there is something uh, about the size of an iPhone in it. Is that correct? Yes, at a slight angle, probably <laughs> um, about uh, 75%, I would say. Yeah. 
So 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 you could see the fail that you just blew. Yeah. Although you you don't drink anymore, really. But you know, with the with the structure of the Alcazar FST, it's designed to not let you see what's going on the screen. Oh, I can just think is, of how I can go at this. This yeah. is great. I mean, this this Vavilov opens a lot of doors, and if adjudicators don't read it, they're going to have a problem. Well, I brought it to a bunch of adjudicators' attention, and I... I know, I, I keep saying, keep... I'm sorry for, like, the 286 pages just before Christmas when you're super busy, but you need to know this. Well, the first adjudicator I said it to, and I spelled it, thought it was Babilov. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I, I understand. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I had I had one hearing where I was talking about it and, and talking about the different, you know, like I introduced it here with Bell and what the facts were there and, and Vavilov and the facts there. And she's like, oh, I was just reading an article about this on my phone. I didn't know it had anything to do with me. Not everything like, to do with oh, you. <laughs> why is nobody telling you when an important decision comes out we've immediately? Been, we've been waiting for this for a long time. You'd Everybody knew about think, it and was discussing it in the legal world. You'd think there would have been a memo to them like that morning. You need to know this. Exactly. This is coming. You need to know when it comes. This is the, like the most important decision that you're probably going to see in your career. Read before your hearings. Exactly. Anyway, but that's fine. So, that... They have a heavy workload, I have to tell you. <laughs> Those people have a heavy workload. They do. And yeah. they are are shockingly underpaid. Shockingly underpaid. And they, um, the only good thing is that they can do some of their hearings from home. Um, but the, uh, that is a hard job and uh, a lot to wade through. And now they're about to get another 40 page submission from you. I would assume we should probably fax the case in a few times. <laughs> Please um, provide to all the adjudicators. Yeah, exactly. Just fax it in one to- copy for each adjudicator. Yeah, fax it 15 times for each adjudicator. Who's there? Dear adjudicator Smith. Yeah. Dear adjudicator, adjudicator Jones. Jones. Yeah. yeah. Those are not real adjudicators. Adjudicator Dollywall. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, okay, shifting topics to our ridiculous driver question mark of the week. Uh, ri- ridiculous police officer of the week. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Ridiculous because this was in the news before the last time that it happened, and you'd think everybody would know about it. You'd think... Because of what happened, that everybody would have gotten a memo that said, don't fucking do this. Yeah. So a police officer gave a IRP to someone who was a passenger in the vehicle who was the supervisor of a person who was a class seven driver. So they made the passenger blow completely illegal. Mm -hmm. You have no right in law to collect evidence in that way. It's a warrantless search. It's not a warrantless search of a driver. One of the very few times, I think, where I would be comfortable telling somebody as legal advice, do not provide a breath sample. It's a warrantless search. But it doesn't matter. You can provide a breath sample. They gave the person a fail. Uh, They got got a fail. If they had refused, they would have got a 90 days as well. Look why I got a designated driver. But but you're not... (laughs) You're not... You're not a driver. You're not a driver. You cannot make somebody provide a sample into an approved screening device unless they're a driver. You can't stop somebody on the street and make them blow into a breathalyzer. You can't breathalyze a passenger. So the explanation was a combination of complete lack of knowledge about the law coupled with sheer stupidity. Yeah. Uh, One portion of the explanation the officer gave to try and justify his conduct was that he 
um, thought that the passenger, because of the size of the vehicle, would have easily been able to reach over and grab the steering wheel. Yeah, that's the that's I was waiting the, for you to go eh, wrong. Eh, well, that's the, that's a real that's the uh, desperate desperate stretch. The next morning when you wake up and you realize, oh shit, I gave a passenger an IRP. So I wrote about this on my blog because I thought, you know, okay, well, is there is there any merit to the notion that a drunk passenger could take control of a vehicle and be in care and control of a vehicle? And there is. In the right circumstances. Well, there's evidence that the person did it. Yeah, if they did it, or if they were tr- were trying to do it, or intended to do it, you know, if they're screaming out the window, "I'm gonna find take the steering wheel from this bitch. They're yeah. driving me home, yeah. and I yeah. want to drive." A great, great YouTube video or something, or vi- yeah. video they're making yeah. with their phone. <laughs> like, I'm gonna to take this car. I'm gonna take this car. This I know he's sober and I'm drunk, but I'm gonna take over this car. You watch me. Here I go. Okay. Yeah. Sure, that would be... That's not the facts, though. That's not the facts here. And the mere possibility... So the case law on care and control says that um, a person is in care and control of a vehicle or now operating a motor vehicle if they are interacting with the fittings or equipment of the vehicle in such circumstances as would give rise to a realistic risk that the vehicle could be set in motion either accidentally or through a change of intention. If you are politely but drunkenly sitting in the passenger seat of the vehicle, you are not interacting with the fittings or equipment of the vehicle in any way that gives rise to a realistic risk. There are circumstances, though, Paul, where people have been found to be in care and control where they've been alone in the vehicle, in the passenger seat or in the back seat. They've been in possession of the keys and there's been nothing to rebut a risk that they would, you know, move to the driver's seat and start driving. Yeah, I think that's ridiculous, but... I also agree. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, how far do you expect people to go? Um, I'm going to sleep in the trunk when I'm drunk. Most officers don't, you know, wouldn't do you if you were in the back seat. Um, No, I mean, it depends when they found you there. If you started the car and were in the back seat, they don't know if somebody else started the car and left you there sleeping, so... Yeah, but, I mean, there there are cases where it's happened. But again, you know, that, that turns on this notion of the realistic risk. And Boudreau says, this is the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Boudreau, leading case on care and control, it says that a person who is intoxicated and in a vehicle always inherently poses a risk. Sure. Drunk Fair people enough. do dumb things. That's why we have jobs. <laughs> well, and, you know, we have a great industry selling alcohol to people who do many dumb of things. them become alcoholics or do dumb things and cause horrible damage and... That's why there's if that If we meme. didn't sell alcohol, then there would be an underground alcohol industry and all sorts of other crimes. So yeah. we're dealing with humans here. And and that's why the meme goes, hold my beer. Exactly. <laughs> so there is this inherent risk that you could argue the passenger poses by being present in the vehicle. But you can rebut the inherent risk in anybody intoxicated being in care and control of a vehicle through evidence, whether it's evidence that's apparent on the facts or, or, or whether it's evidence that you come to court and testify about, um, through evidence to show that you made an alternative plan. And that's in fact what Boudreaux was about. The facts of Boudreaux are great. Guy's trying to get laid. Like he goes on a date with a woman, the date progresses, they go back to her house and bang he's... bang lulu no lulu went away no yeah lulu, lulu went away bang bang that's why she went away um 
Lulu had a boyfriend, name was Tommy Tucker. Took her out to his place to see if he could bang, bang, okay. Lulu. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the podcast isn't a podcast without a song. It's not, but I'm trying to get into like a complex concept it's here. It's too long. Hurry up. Okay. <laughs> Pick it up. He's trying, to, he's trying to bang her and she's not into it. So she's like, dude, you should call yourself a cab and go. So he calls, he waits a while and there's like no taxi, doesn't show up. And she goes, look, dude. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So out you go. Kicks him out, and he waits in his car. Taxi never comes, but the police do. Of course. Boom, he's busted. Not only did he not hook up with the woman he wanted to hook up with, got his heart a little broken, um, but he also got an impaired driving charge. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is also in Quebec, in, like, minus 30 and four, 14 feet of snow or whatever. Um, only love can break a heart, but... Really, really cold weather can freeze you yeah, to death. Yeah. Um, so he's he's sleeping in the car, but there was the evidence that he had tried to call the taxi, and the taxi never came, and that was sufficient evidence Perfect. to yeah. establish an alternative plan. Putting a fucking sober person in the driver's seat, regardless of whether or not that sober person in the driver's seat is licensed, even, is evidence of an alternative plan that rebuts any realistic risk. Exactly. Anyway, I mean, we had this case before. We've, we've, we've been to this rodeo. Yeah. I don't know what they say. I've, I've, I've... Peter Norman. Exactly. Nice grandfather. He was a passenger in a vehicle. He was pulled over. It was uh, somewhere up near Kamloops. And, and uh, he grandson was... Grandson with his L. Grandson with his L. And the police officer gave, <laughs> gave old Peter an IRP. And uh, he missed his seven days. It was just a... We clear, clarified it after and, and got rid of it for him. But ever since that decision, uh, when we've had something that's this bad in our office, this bad, there's two things that we've done. We've either contacted the superior officer, the senior. Yep. <laughs> who's phone a, the detachment. Phone who's the, the detachment. Yeah, sometimes we know them. Sometimes Kyla can text them. Uh, or we've uh, just contacted the... Um, the head of adjudication team at the superintendent's office and had gotten rid of it quickly without a hearing. Yep. So can you just pull this file and take a look at it? Yeah. You may want to look at this one because I don't think you guys would really feel good about it. Um, if we have to go through the whole process of a hearing, you'll revoke it, but you won't feel good about any of it. And yeah. uh, in those cases, we didn't even have to pay the filing fee. However. Yeah. But I mean, everybody has different litigation strategies. No, that's for sure. So, uh, last topic in the five and a bit minutes that we have left, Paul, I wanted to talk to you about another shocking, ridiculous thing that's not actually that shocking, but is really fucking ridiculous. Jeez, you're swearing a lot. Sorry. Is that end of the year swearing? It's my, I'm getting all my, I gotta get my quotas, you know, yeah. just okay. like police officers. Um, the ICBC response to civil claim in Constable Sarah Beckett's case. Oh, that, yeah, that was very upsetting. I mean, what are they thinking? So, I mean, the little background context, the RCMP have their own insurance. Um, and the RCMP insurance wanted to collect from ICBC for the cost of the cruiser. Fair enough. Um, what is the cost of a cruiser? We know the driver was insured by ICBC was committing a criminal offense and they would have to collect it from him ultimately down the road. Mm. But, um, you know, what is the cost of the cruiser? And the RCMP is entitled to be reimbursed by the person at fault, which is the driver who's committing a criminal offense. 
Yep, and the way that our socialized insurance system works is even if the driver's committing a criminal offense and is breached in his insurance, ICBC deals with the litigation to some extent. Well, and in a case like this, um, you know, ICBC is on the hook to pay and then they would come back and collect from the driver who I think was still in jail up until a little while ago. I know he was paroled sooner than people liked, but... He got day parole or something. In any event, so they, um, the two-year limitation period must have been coming up and they hadn't settled with ICBC and you'd think that settling with ICBC on that would be easy. What is the cost of the, the cruiser, the replacement value, the depreciated value? You know, what did the cruiser cost and what's the replacement cost? And figure out a depreciated value, come up with a number and, and sort it out, write and a check. pay it and then go, hey, Mr. Fenton, you owe us for this. Exactly. Instead, ICBC filed a reply to the notice of civil claim where they, well, I mean, blamed, you were more, they, they blamed, blamed her. Sarah Beckett for the collision, said that she was negligent. She pulled out of a parking lot responding to a call about a fleeing vehicle to try and set herself up in a tactical position so as to stop this driver who was posing a huge risk to public safety. She lost her life trying to protect the public. Like, the highest thing that you can do as a police officer. Highest duty you could have to your fellow man. Sure, but like, as a police officer, you willingly undertake to put yourself in harm's way, and she did it. And she did it because, not because she was negligent, but because it was her legal obligation as a member of the RCMP to do that. And she cannot be expected to make perfect decisions all the way there. She might have made a slightly different decision in a different context. Maybe. It doesn't matter. But she made the decision. It's like, as as Chris Thompson said, there's psychology and there's there's mechanics and there's physics and then then there's a police officer having to make a decision about what she's going to do here when she's got this guy driving in a manner that's... It worked. She stopped him. She stopped him. She saved people. Lost her life and saved people, potentially. Um, and uh, I, I mean, it was just offensive that ICBC did that. It was that. sick. And, but you and know they what? came out and apologized. But oh. I mean, the, how they how it got beyond the somebody reading it over and sending it in. I'll tell you how, Paul. And I want to have Eric on to talk about this a little bit, too. How it gets past that is that this is standard practice in every ICBC claim. They always, no matter what the facts are, deny reality and plead nonsense. Well, you know, back in law school, I remember taking a class and we had to write pleadings. And I enjoyed writing the pleadings in a case to start a case as a sample. Um, And you're pleading all sorts of things that you don't know about that you kind of think maybe the evidence will come out. But at the same time, you've got to be thinking to yourself as you're doing this, you know, um, that oath that you take about frivolous lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that includes frivolous, um, advancing frivolous well, in those, in, points in like that. Well, in many circumstances, there are countless cases where ICBCs had to be taken to court in applications to strike portions of their pleadings because they're frivolous or vexatious or just plain false or unsupported by any evidence whatsoever. Um, And they've lost and they've had to pay costs. And you want to talk about soaring legal costs at ICBC? You better believe that ICBC paid a lawyer to draft those pleadings. And now a lawyer has to spend time, and I would hope that whatever lawyer drafted those pleadings is not charging ICBC for this, but 
A lawyer has to spend time, which in any other case than this one would cost money, and ICBC would be billed for it, amending the pleadings. Well, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for ICBC. It's offensive to the family. It's offensive to the community. Yep. Um, you know, I was offended by it. I was deeply hurt and touched when she when she was killed. Um, and uh, I think police officers around the province, the Oak Bay uh, RCMP, tweeted something that they were, you know, indicated they were very hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I expect them to be humans. Um, and uh, I understand that. Uh, it, was, uh, it was hurtful. And it really is a black eye to ICBC at a time when... ICBC is, I mean, ICBC is perpetually under criticism, but being criticized for other reasons, you know, new reasons since the NDP took over. I just think that this is, this is an example of, of, of the significant ways in which ICBC is responsible for their own mess. And I think, you know, this is one of those times when David Eby needs to come out and say, you know what? Yeah, it's not just plaintiff personal injury lawyers who are to blame. There's also our own lawyers pulling stunts like this that have cost this corporation money and I won't tolerate it anymore. But we don't see that. And that frustrates me. Well, because you can imagine, though, what he's being told. Because he's not sitting around talking to plaintiff's lawyers. Yes, I mean, he, he finds out about he had it. had lots of meetings with plaintiff's lawyers. Yeah, he's not having the same meetings. And he goes back to the government lawyers and the government, you know, people tell him one thing. And we know this. We've been through this before. Mm-hmm. It was only once we got through to some people that we were able to actually explain the points. Um, and that was only after we had been pummeling them and pummeling them for a while. Anyway, um, I'm, um, I'm optimistic that there will be some, um, uh, changes, changes, some little reflection, some little self-reflection. I sang for you. Yeah. Um, and back to singing. So we released a second song in and out. There's a video. It's also now on iTunes, the Accutones, in and out and we've had podcasts since we released it, and we never mentioned the song. Well, and so now, go to iTunes. At the end of this, at the end of this uh, podcast, I just wanted to mention it. Yeah, go to iTunes, download in and out. We'll even... You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, and uh, or Spotify watch it on probably YouTube, Spotify. Whatever, find it where you find your internet music and uh, have a listen. Tell us what you think and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. If you need to reach either me or Paul, you can find us online, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give us a call, 604 685 8889.